Philippians chapter number two, we read in our public scripture reading this morning down through verse number 18, 12 through 18. This morning, we're going to cover just as 12 and 13, just two verses. And uh, then Pastor Andy's going to take us down through the rest of that paragraph uh, next week through verse 18. And uh, these, these couple verses that we have here in, in 12 and 13 uh, really are, uh, serve as somewhat of a, another transitional statement, if you will. It's, it's an opportunity for Paul to kind of get back into, into the flow of his uh, apostolic prose, just to get away from this hymn of Christ, this poetry, and to jump back in now to some of these just practical teachings and imperatives uh, for the benefit of unity within the body of Christ and uh, for our own Christian living. And so um, I hope this, this morning that these two verses, as we unpack them, that the Lord would challenge our hearts and our minds once again in regards to the, to the gospel. Um, we're going to continue just to, to soak and to linger in gospel truth really through the remainder of this, this letter to the church at Philippi. But once again, even coming off the heels of this hymn of Christ where we just saw one of the most beautiful portrayals of the personal work of Jesus, uh, Paul is now gonna transition to what does it look like to live like this one that we have just sung about, this one that we have been taught about, this one that we've been confronted about, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does it look like now to live and to walk and to live and to love like him. And so the title of this morning's message is The Gospel in Motion. The Gospel in Motion. Some things in this world are just, are just meant to be and, and designed to be in motion. What do I mean by that? If you, if you think of things that are often in motion, you can uh, have different word pictures in mind. You can have things that come into your mind of, of things that are often in motion. When those things aren't in motion, uh, they have little to no value. Why? Because they were created to be in motion. They were designed to be in motion. What are, what are some of those things? Uh, I can think of uh, just a car or really any type of of vehicle, they were designed to be in motion, to take you from uh, the point where you're at into some desired destination. Now, certainly a, a car can function for other things, a shelter and um, um, you know, American ingenuity, you could use a vehicle for probably a lot of different things, but it was originally designed to be in, in motion, right? You think of a plane. Uh, we certainly hope that when you get onto a plane that it goes in motion and that motion doesn't stop while you're, while you're in the air, right? These are things that are meant to be in, in motion. I think of a bullet or, or ammunition. It, it can't accomplish the thing that it was accomplished, that it was designed to do to hit that target uh, unless it is in, in motion. I, I think of, uh, on the athletic side, I think of, of a bat, and a ball, uh, I think of a golf club and a golf ball. These things are meant to be in motion in order for them to uh, accomplish and, and to do what they were designed to do. I think on maybe a, a larger scale or a grander scale, I think of the earth's rotation. God created this earth to be in, in motion. I think of a moon that is uh, rotating around or orbiting a planet without motion, those things uh, a lot can go awry. 
Many things are just meant to be in motion. If they are to function as they were designed to function and accomplish the purpose for which they were created. In a similar sense, friends, the gospel was intended to be in motion. Within the context of the local church and more broadly, the gospel was intended to be in motion within the context of this world that the Lord has placed us for such a time as this. In this generation, God is designed for in his perfect plan of redemption for the gospel to go forth, for it to be in motion, to be moving, to be seeking, to save the lost. That's why we are called to great commission living as followers of Christ We are called to go and make disciples. That is language and verbiage of motion. In light of the context of this incredible hymn of Christ where we saw the person and work of Jesus, we saw the humiliation of Christ as he was brought low and took on the form of a servant through the incarnation and then as God highly exalted him, And gave him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In light of this beautiful and perfect example of Jesus, we, the church, are called to pursue, to live out a gospel in motion. So again, as Paul shifts away from this section of poetry and he dives back into this instruction to the church, he has unity Still within the context, he has this destination of unity around the gospel as the destination that we as the local church would arrive to. As Pastor Dave kicked off chapter two, he reminded us of that core theme through chapter number two. So Paul is going to encourage his readers now to take action to get into motion, to put into motion the gospel that they have seen And observed through the testimony and the witness of the Apostle Paul, they've seen the person and work of Jesus. They've been confronted with these realities. And and now what? Paul is essentially saying. Coming out of verses 6 through 11, this hymn was designed to draw the readers into a sense of worship. And true worship of Jesus should motivate our lives. I don't know about you, when you, when you sit through and participate in our Sunday morning worship service and we hear these songs and we proclaim these truths, does it, does it do something to your heart? Does it, does it stir you up in considering the realities of these truths, the implications of these truths on your life? It should, it should cause us to get into motion. True worship will always draw Christ followers to move. That's exactly what Paul is attempting to do here, to challenge his readers, to now take action upon the truth that they have been confronted with in verses 12 through 13. So the big idea of our message this morning is this, because God is at work in us. We can work out the gospel in our lives and in the context of the local church through simple obedience to him. Because God is at work in us, we can work out 
the gospel in our lives and in the context of the local church through simple obedience to him. So this morning we're going to look at just two simple observations uh, from these two verses. And the first point is this. We're going to look at the call to continue in Christ-like obedience. The call to continue in Christ-like obedience. Let's look at verse number 12. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul opens up verse 12 with this, again, transitional word, therefore. You remember we unpacked that word a bit, or this phrase in the Greek in verse number 9. From last week, Paul uses it once again in verse number 12. He starts this, this verse with, therefore. Anytime we see this word in Scripture, friends, as you're studying Scripture, as you're seeking to know the Lord and understand Scripture and you're studying, anytime you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, it should cause us to recall the immediate context of this passage. It's almost like a marker that... Uh, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these biblical authors would, would put this, this, this phrase or this, this term, this word in for us, for us to, to hit a strategic timeout, a pause button, and just to stop and think. What has been said, what has been taught, what has been instructed in the immediate context that, that, uh, that, that came before it. So Paul intends to call the readers into a state of now application based on the context. What was the context? It was the gospel, right? Do you, do you remember this? Uh, this beautiful hymn of Christ, it was the person and work of Jesus. So based on the realities of the gospel, based on this worshipful hymn of Christ, what should their response be as readers? And as we span the gap of time, what should our response be to the person and work of Jesus in the gospel? This is why the therefore is there, for us to consider these things, to think about Jesus as we continue to work through the rest of this passage. So verses 12 and 13 really are all about application. It's about understanding the implications of the gospel. So before Paul dives into this call to consider a gospel in motion, he first addresses his readers as, what's the phrase he uses? My beloved. I love this phrase. I love this phrase so much that as I was preparing to study for this message, and as I often do as I consult different commentaries, I was somewhat shocked, surprised, and disappointed of how little was included in the commentary in regards to this beautiful phrase, therefore my beloved, Paul says. It's easy for us to seemingly skip over this phrase as if it has no real uh, uh, practical value in our understanding of the text or the context of this chapter. But I would, I would remind us of Paul's opening Thanksgiving and prayer where Paul did what he said, I thanked God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership 
in the gospel from the first day until now. There is a deep-seated love and affection that Paul has towards this church, namely because of what? Their partnership in the gospel. This is our series title as we continue to work through this letter uh, to the church at Philippi, partnering in the gospel. And so as Paul recounts these realities and the truths as he's now worked through some teaching, as he's uh, reminded them of this, this hymn, this song of Christ, he reminds them of the relationship that he has towards them because he's about to challenge them with some heavy imperatives. And so he says, therefore, my beloved. He's looking back to chapter one, verse number five. It was there that Paul on the hills of this very personal and and intimate encouragement that the apostle was thankful for their ongoing faithfulness and partnership in the gospel. On the heels of of that, we have verse number six where he says what? And I am sure of this, that he who began, as Pastor Andy pointed our attention to, he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. In verse number eight, he says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Do you remember this this love and affection, this yearning that Paul has to be in, in this type of relationship and fellowship with the church at Philippi? And just as we challenged ourselves back in chapter number one, I wonder Just as Paul reminds them, therefore, my beloved, this is how he thinks, this is how he feels, and this is how he relates to this church at Philippi. He relates to them as beloved. Man, I have to hit this little time out and have a little sidebar that in our American Christian culture of the church, Certainly we can appreciate one another. Certainly we enjoy one another. Certainly we, we can get along with one another. But I, I wonder how many of us truly can say, as, as Paul did, my beloved, with that familial type of love and affection towards one another that's going to draw him to, to, to be that drink offering that's poured out in the coming verses. This is why he can do the things that he is doing. This is why he can relate to the church in the way that he does because he loves this church. He loves the people, the relationships of this church. So friends, I wonder if we need to challenge our own hearts and how we relate to one another in the context of the local church. This type of love and affection and yearning, this type of language where we could describe one another as beloved within the context of the local church, that's gonna take some time, some effort. It's gonna cause us to have to be available to one another, to sacrifice on the behalf of one another, to count others' interests more than our, our own. To sacrifice as Christ modeled for us in the hymn of Christ. 
Wondering, do, do we need to take that point away and think on that and ponder that this week and maybe take intentional steps towards pursuing this type of affectionate love and yearning towards the body of Christ in a more real, tangible way in the days ahead. Chapter four, verse number one, Paul is going to finish his book, once again, reminding them of this relationship. He appeals to this affection one more time. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And Paul, time and time again in this letter, is affirming his relationship with them through these words of affirmation. I would encourage you to send words of affirmation to one another in the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let him know that you're thinking about him. You're praying for him. You love him. You care for him. How can I help? How can I come alongside? How can I meet this need? How can I pray for you? Do we engage with the church in this way? Do we, do we model this beloved relationship that, that Paul has with the church at Philippi here? So they are called by Paul, my beloved, in verse 12. He is leveraging the state of their relationship to reveal the sincerity of his message that would follow. Right, let me say that one more time. He's, he's using this, this, this type of language. This, he, he's appealing and leveraging the state of their relationship to reveal the sincerity of his message because he's gonna have some hard things to say in the coming paragraphs. And so he will appeal to, don't, don't forget my beloved. I, I long for you. I love you. I care for you. I yearn for you. He's going to have the opportunity to speak the truth in love. This language, this therefore, this strategic time out should, should cause them to, to sit up as he proclaims that they are his beloved. It should cause them to sit up and listen to take notice to pay attention to what he is about to say. So now that Paul has their attention, through therefore, my beloved, he launches out to call them to continue in their testimony of what? Christ-like obedience. Christ-like obedience. Similar to the structure of chapter number one, verse number 27, where Paul said, what do you remember? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There is a, a call to continue and there is an encouragement to continue. Whether Paul is there or whether he is not, the challenge and the call, the command is to do what? To model Christ. To ensure the gospel stays in motion. That whether he's there or he's absent, the gospel is continuing to go forward. That they're living out Christ-like obedience in the context of their relationships with one another in the local church. So he commends them in verse number 12. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he commends them in verse number 12, and now he commands them in verse number 12. 
It moves on to say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Here we have this first imperative at the end of verse number 12. We see it, these two words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you've been around the church much at all, you've likely heard this verse. Um, Unfortunately, you, you may have heard this verse uh, as it, as it po- probably was cherry-picked out of context. Maybe there was some sensational calls to wrestle over one's personal salvation experience to ensure that, that they are in the faith. This was likely the interpretation that you may be familiar with. And although there, there may be some slight validity to this, I believe Paul has more for us as we understand this verse in its actual context. So this imperative to work out, what does it mean? Could literally be translated to cause a state or condition to bring about, produce, or create. Paul uses this word in other places. I'll give you a couple examples just to show the relationship of this this verb or this imperative as Paul uses it in some other passages. Romans 5 verse number 3 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces. That's our word here that Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse number 12, translated work out in Romans 5, verse number 3, knowing that suffering produces, what does it produce? It produces endurance. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing, or some translations say achieving. That's our word, preparing or achieving. What is preparing or achieving for us? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this is what this word looks like as used by Paul in in some other instances. So what are they to work out? They're to work out Your salvation, work out your salvation. It's interesting that Paul uses the plural form of both the pronoun and the noun. Both your and salvation are in a a plural form, which should cause us to consider that, um, that Paul may not have so much of an individualistic view in mind here as far as working out your salvation, Rather, he likely has a more corporate view in mind here. This is what all of chapter two has been about, right? What, did, what foundation did, did Pastor Dave lay for us? It was about unity in the gospel, not conformity around externals or, or man-made ideas. It was unity around the personal work of Jesus, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So then, Paul is saying, church, Work out your salvation. Walk in the same obedience that Christ did. Allow by God's grace for the gospel to have motion to it. Work out the gospel. Let the gospel produce something in your midst. And that something is what? It's, it's unity. The same mind, the same love, the same accord. In the previous verses of chapter number two. So then this call and command to work out your salvation should be understood, namely, in a corporate context, and is with fear and trembling, 
with fear and trembling. There's a prepositional phrase here that, that Paul includes to give us some additional clarifications, some insights, nuances as to what it might look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, there's a soberness that is described here. Why? Because Paul has eternity in mind. As we mentioned in previous messages, Paul, really all through this letter, has really an eschatological mind and view. That's the end times. He's looking forward to the future hope of what? Christ returning, right? Do, do you remember some of these uh, aspects that we looked at? Chapter one, verse number 28, Paul said, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That has an eschatological view in mind. A future eternal destruction and eternal salvation, the hope of heaven. Paul had eternity in mind. It was looking forward to a day where every knee will bow. Do you remember this in our immediate context of the hymn of Christ? And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And in just a couple verses, next week, Pastor Andy will take us to verse number 16, which refers to the day of Christ. Again, looking forward to the future and literal salvation in the end times. This is the future hope of our present reality in the gospel. We're reminded, Romans chapter number one, verse number 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul supports the reality that salvation is only from God. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Individually, corporately, so then how are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? This is causing them to consider an attitude or disposition. Living in light of the gospel should demonstrate an attitude of fear and trembling. This has the idea of awe and reverence. I won't take the time, but there are scores of verses in the Old Testament that would refer to this phrase with fear and trembling. This is an awe, a fear of the Lord, an awe and reverence, recognizing rightly who God is as creator and redeemer of all of creation. So this attitude of fear and trembling, it's an attitude of humility and submission that was most re recently modeled in our context by whom? Jesus Christ. Humble obedience and submission to the Father to do his will. So we have this call to continue in Christ-like obedience, to remember who Christ is, how he lived. For the church to be called to work out their salvation, to allow the gospel to stay in motion among them, allow it to not become stagnant or stale or just going through the motions of, of attending something or being together, but rather Pursuing one another for the sake of the gospel. Pursuing active participation in the unity within the body of Christ. 
So we have this call to continue in Christ-like obedience. Secondly, this brings us uh, to our next observation. Second point, we're going to look at the confidence to remember the grace of God. The confidence to remember the grace of God. We must be careful to not misunderstand Paul's teaching here. Paul is not advocating as Some may fall into the trap of interpreting this wrongly. He's not advocating for the church or individuals to work harder or to do more in an effort to earn salvation. On the contrary, Paul inserts this beautiful and gospel-saturated phrase in an effort to ease the minds of his readers and assure them of God's grace. What is this phrase? Verse number 13, for it is God who works in you. Praise the God for this verse. Praise God for this phrase, for it is God who works in you. Are you thankful that God has worked in you? Without God working, we are hopeless to be left in our sin, to be lost in our sin without God making a way through his son, Jesus Christ, We would still be in our sins. Praise the Lord that God went to work on our behalf. For it is God who works in you. The reminder here, this grace-enabled reminder, it, it would have been this big breath of fresh air on the heels of a somewhat heavy imperative to work out your salvation. So Paul is reminding them that they can only work out because God is working in, right? Let me say that one more time. Paul reminds them that they can only work out because God is already working in them. This dispels any misinterpretation on Paul's view of salvation. It starts with God. Salvation ends with God and everything in between is from God, praise the Lord. So God works in you. The verb used here for works, it could literally be translated as to put one's capabilities into operation, to put it to work, to be at work, to be active, to operate, to be effective. So then we could say this, all the capabilities of God's power, which he is supremely omnipotent, has all power, is the source of all power, So all of God's power, the capabilities of God's power in the gospel are in operation. They are active. They are effective in in the work of every local body of believers. There's incredible hope, incredible encouragement that God is at work in us. So what then is God working in us? Paul goes on, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul reminds us here that God provides both the desire, that's that's the will, and the power, that's the work. He provides the will and the power to walk in obedience to the Lord. Notice here the order of the working agents in verse number 13. Let's read it one more time. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So it is God who works, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's working in us precedes our working for him. This is the the order of the working agents in verse number 13. Did you catch that, church? God's working in us. It will always precede our working for him. To what end and for what purpose does God work in us both to will and to work? Paul says it is for his good pleasure. Paul reminds them once again that it is all about the glory of God. Right now in the church, it is all about the glory of God and his good pleasure now and in the days ahead and certainly in the last day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of whom? To the glory of God the Father. Paul is is building on this hymn of Christ, referencing back to it often as he continues to teach them to to put the gospel in motion. So there's a call to continue in Christ-like obedience, and there's a confidence to remember the grace of God. For it is God who works in you. This is God's grace unmeasured towards us. The grace that he has lavished upon us without measure. Friends, how powerful is it and how helpful and encouraging is it for us to just stop in the midst of our own flesh's desire and propensity to do what? Lean on our own understanding? To lean on our own way and to not acknowledge the Lord? We try to put, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We try to just try a little harder, check a few more boxes, and just try to be a little bit better than the person beside us. And we think somehow that we've accomplished something, somehow that we, 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 we have something to offer the Lord, our righteousness in the eyes of God. Isaiah 64, I think we referenced it last week. The, the, the prophet describes it as filthy rags, worthless, putrid, Without any value, this is how God sees righteousness that is rooted in our own strength. This is why Paul will say in chapter three in the verses to come, I count everything as loss. Everything that he could accomplish, everything that he had, his name, his accomplishments, his standing in society, his titles, his background, his heritage, everything was what? Worthless, no value. It was only God working in him. The grace of God. This work, thank God, is not up to me, but God, through the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel invites me to work on his behalf and for his glory in the context of his bride, the local church, the body of Christ. 
Through a group of unified and surrendered brothers and sisters in Christ, God puts the gospel in motion in their midst, in a community, in a neighborhood, in our little corner of the world. The gospel is moving. It's not stale and stagnant and irrelevant. But they're seeing the power of the living God. Resurrection power. They're seeing that come right before their eyes because of a unified gospel-saturated group of believers that is passionate and committed and focused. Not at ancillary things that we can bicker and fight about. Not focused on external conformities or things that they could pursue or kingdoms that they could build for their own self or their own name. They're concerned about the name of Jesus. They're concerned about letting his kingdom come and his will be done among them. And so that we have an opportunity as the body of Christ to paint just this small picture of a kingdom that is yet to come in the day of Christ. So God puts his gospel in motion. It's not stale or stagnant. It's alive, it's vibrant, and it's working, and it is moving to seek and to save the lost. It's God's perfect plan of redemption. That plan of redemption that is seeking a remnant For the glory of God, we get to see that unfold before us in our homes, in our marriages, among our neighbors and coworkers. It's a beautiful opportunity, friends, as we consider what God has for us in the context of the local church. So our big idea this morning, again, as a reminder, was because God is at work in us, we can work out the gospel in our lives. And in the context of the local church, through simple obedience through him. Simple obedience, humble, submissive obedience, as was modeled by Christ, that ultimately allows for what? God to use us for his glory. This is, friends, the gospel in motion. Would you join me as we close in a word of prayer this morning? Father God, we thank you for your love towards us. We thank you that the gospel moved towards us. Thank you that Jesus drew us to himself. We thank you, God, for making us alive, for taking the scales of our eyes off so that we could see the truth of our need that we are lost in our sin. And but for God, through sending his own son, Jesus Christ, we are lost and without hope. So Father, I pray that maybe there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior. Maybe they've heard about Jesus. Maybe they've gone to church for many, many years. But right now, in this moment, maybe... Lord, you're stirring their heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded that if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead, that he went to a cross, that he shed his blood to atone for our sins, and through Jesus Christ going to a tomb and raising again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and defeating sin, death, and hell, You promised that if we believe in our heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, we will be saved. Father, I pray that the gospel 
would not just be a truth of an event in the past, but it would be something that we love and appreciate, live in and walk in every single day of our life. That the gospel would change how we live in this community of believers at Liberty Hills Bible Church. It would change how we live in the context of our home, relationship with our, our spouses and our kids. It would change our tone, our attitude, our reactions. And Father God, I pray that you would do that work in me. Do that work among us in our church. I pray that we would see a gospel in motion as you desire. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.